Hello, and welcome to Japanese History for Gaijins. I'm your host, John, and this is the podcast where we summarize Japanese history for all you busy, busy people out there. From this point on, we're going to be jumping around the era a bit, because talking about events that happen every 10 years would get boring and incoherent, like, super fast. However, we are going to be spending a lot of episodes in the high-end period, because this is the first proper time that we have some nice historical records. As well as that, the cultural development of Japan explodes during this period. You have poetry collections and writing developing. As well as that, you have what is widely considered the world's first novel that is written in the early 11th century, by a female courtier who is referred to as Murasaki Shikibu. This story is called the Genji Monogatari, in English, the tale of Genji. It tells the story of the life of an imperial prince around the palace, and the many events that happened to him, and eventually his son. It's a classic of world literature, and I cannot do it justice in such a short time, so expect more soon in a different episode about the tale of Genji. As Japan's culture is evolving, the Fujiwara are ruling as totally not emperors. Though, in the 9th century, where we last left off, relations with China were… off for a bit. China and Japan really have an on-again, off-again relationship throughout their entire histories. It feels a bit like that detective TV show, where it's a will-they-won't-they they kind of dynamic, slowly affecting each other's behaviour for the better, until it's the ninth season and it's ruined because they have a baby two seasons ago, looking at you, Bones. Cinematic masterpiece though you are. However, what really influences Japan that comes over from China is magic. Yeah, magic. Woo, let's Harry Potter this. No, wait, it, it's boring magic. I, I didn't really think such a thing existed. Well, basically imagine that everyone in Japanese high society is really into their horoscopes. Like that one aunt you don't really talk to. In Japanese, this is called Onmyodo which translates to the way of yin and yang. Therefore, by the name, you can kind of tell what it is. It's natural balance, also kind of obsessed with telling the future, and what things are lucky or unlucky. It's like when that one friend of yours says a certain colour is messing with their feng shui. Just imagine just every person was like that. Well, every rich person at least. Because not only were days or colours or events lucky or unlucky, it becomes people's entire jobs to try and predict the future of the best way to do stuff in coordination with the stars. Think of it as professional horoscope prediction. This is one of the theories that I mentioned briefly in the last episode of why the capital site before Kyoto was abandoned, basically because of these cultural obsessions. This was not just the middle class and newly rich like trying to impress, but this was all noblemen and women. The Fujiwara regents themselves would check in with their oracles and diviners to check that the routes they're taking weren't unlucky, maybe going to the shops that day, gotta go left instead of right. The government had an entire bureau of civil servants known as the Omnyo Ryo, or the Department of Yin and Yang. I'm just imagining now, it's like if the UK civil service somehow had a department of tea leaf reading. Wait, that actually exists. It doesn't for any non-UK listeners. Anyway, this is where some of the Asian stereotypes of 
delay and bureaucracy can come from of, no, we shall not do this until the sun has reached its zenith and the god has changed directions, because moving in the same direction as a god is apparently unlucky. Maybe they'll step on you, I don't know. That is actually a true thing. You can't go in certain directions at certain times because there are gods walking in that direction. Mm. However, I urge you to remember, this is not exclusively an Asian idea of being able to somehow predict the future using pseudoscience. The amount of alchemists and astronomers in the medieval court of Europe, say nay to that. The interesting thing that happens in Japan is its diffusion, like, into society. This is a point where there is almost universal belief that Buddhist priests can use exorcism to cure diseases. Once again, this is not exclusively Japanese <coughs> Christianity. <coughs> However, unlike Christianity, people are not possessed by demons or bad humours, but simply bad spirits. Remember the Shinto idea of gods and spirits is that they're just kind of there, and some bad ones getting in you it isn't too far-fetched. Therefore, the idea that people used to somehow predict and control them is far from ridiculous. Though trends like this exist throughout China and the medieval European world, Japan itself becomes a strange mix of native beliefs, imported Buddhism, and some homegrown schools of Buddhism. By this point, many Buddhists had reconciled the Shinto deities and spirits as protectors of Buddhism. Essentially what happens throughout the Heian period is the Japanese love of magic and spiritualism mixing with that of spectacle and ritual. I mean, what is better than a hundred monks waving fans to exercise a spirit from the empress giving birth? What is more impressive than a minister of state paying the young monks of a hundred monasteries to beat gongs at ten times every day for ten days? All because the minister was having bad dreams. Both of those examples are historically accurate. With all this magic and astronomy floating around, Buddhist institutions were having an interesting time. Though not in direct influence of the emperor and the Fujiwara, the monasteries were still super powerful. There were two main schools of Buddhist thought in Japan. You had the Tendai, who were very open and wide-reaching. Essentially their purpose was to spread Buddhism as far and wide as possible, though still to the very rich and wealthy. And they were a lot less exclusive than the other main school, Shingon. Shingon was the home to lots of the exorcism and mystery that I've been talking about. Shingon was the mysterious but exciting exclusive school, which for obvious reasons became very popular with the court, who became very obsessed with displays and ritual. However, arguing of theological disputes can be left to the priests, as most people only cared about one thing, karma. Their points and progress through the wheel of time, focusing on their life at the moment as just a small part of the cycle. This suited the religious institutions just fine, as it put more money into their buildings and property. With one of the most interesting places being a Tendai monastery next to Kyoto called Mount Hiye, which grew and grew throughout this period. Note the Tendai sect, as it were, basically becomes the biggest one in Japan, and a lot of the infighting between Buddhism that I'm going to talk about is mostly between different parts of the Tendai sect. Shingon doesn't really get involved. 
Now this is confusing, but essentially what happened was there was a disagreement on who should lead the Tendai sect, and that happened in the late 9th century. Now this is when these large monasteries started hiring bodyguards slash bullies slash their own private armies, or as the Japanese so succinctly put it, Akuzo, which just means bad monk. Japan is famous for its religious openness and toleration throughout its history. Even today, the lack of religiosity and the mix of culture and religion in Japan is a huge thing. Japan in its history has never had any kind of crusade or jihad or unification or forced conversions. What does happen though is a huge amount of infighting, especially in this period between the different religious houses, mostly of the Tendai sect as they become the most powerful and most prominent throughout the country. This fighting becomes so bad that some of these monasteries end up controlling permanent armies with which they attacked other monasteries. Mount Hiye was attacked multiple times, with the other Buddhist houses burning their buildings and stealing their stuff. This just seems like if the local pastor hired some dudes from the local pub to go to the next town over and burn down their church and nick their organ. That is so what happened, convince me otherwise. So then, each of these temples started building up armies for self-defense, and then they found out, oh, these armies can get us what we want. And also, a lot of people who aren't religious institutions, they can't really fight us, because you can't punch a vicar, that's a man of God. He can punch you though, without question, because you gonna punch the vicar back? This means that multiple times throughout the late High End period, the different monasteries and temples would occasionally get their boys together, pop down to the capital, and sort something out they didn't much like. Mount Hiye becomes one of the worst defenders because of its size and proximity to the capital. So much so that it is one of the first dominoes that starts to fall at the end of the Heian period to start a conflict that would change Japanese history forever. However, that's a little bit in the future, I'm afraid. These warrior monks are a lot of fun, and they play a role in a lot of the coming hundred years, so for the final part of this podcast, I thought I'd describe what they looked like and how they lived, because it's not like any priest you've ever seen. Think more of something like a Knights Templar or a Knights Hospitalia. Essentially, they're very religious soldiers who are just, they're good at killing. And they all live together in a big religious warrior fraternity. They would have their own home temple and might have many, many sub-temples. It was just a private army of monk bros who were created and funded by the different Buddhist monasteries. The official term used for these warrior monks was Sohe, and especially during the Heian era, they would not have used katanas! Katanas, as we think of them in the West, have not been invented yet. So, no big curvy swords? Well, they had curvy swords, but they're a little different. The word katana isn't used until after the Heian period ends in the late 12th century. What they would have had were the tanto and the wakizahi. Basically, the former is a short stabby dagger, and the latter is a smaller curved sword version of what we think of now as a katana. Some of them wore kimonos and the traditional clothing of monks, which was and a kind of basic Japanese dress with a kind of rough spun kind of top and more robe-based bottoms. Like, not proper trousers, but kind of enough that you'd be able to walk and do manual labour in them. 
this is very much of the vision that we have of Japan with the traditional clothing. It doesn't actually change much over that thousand years. What the monks definitely would have had is these kind of special socks that have a big toe separate and wood or straw sandals. And the kind of toe separation in the sock lets them better walk on the sandals. Some of the monks fought on horseback and some wore that heavy style squarish armour that we associate a lot with the Japanese. This armour is called Oyodoi, which means great armour. There are multiple subsets of the armour types and I'm not going to get into it because to be frank, it's boring as sin. Anyway, that big heavy armour was mostly made for fighting on horseback because it was so damn heavy and was also to help specifically cavalry archers, as the monks were famously well-trained archers, apparently. However, the weapon that is famous throughout Japan that is associated with the Sohei is called the Naginata, which is basically a short spear, but with a curved katana-like blade on the top. This was probably not used up until the very end of the Heian era, but it becomes a very popular visual signifier in Japanese art to identify a warrior monk. The reason being, at this time, horseback fighting was becoming more and more popular in Japan, and these weapons with long reach could easily help dismount opponents. However, just the extra reach of the weapon like this would allow a trained practitioner to create a lot of space in a fight and be able to more safely spite multiple unskilled opponents that might have made up their opposition. The art of using a naginata as a martial art is called naginata jutsu, which just kinda sounds awesome. They also became very popular later in Japanese history with the Ona Bugesha, a kind of female warrior belonging to the families of the Japanese great houses. In that case, the Naginata was favoured due to its distance and reach that compensated for a male warrior's likely superior strength and size. We will do some great episode on Japanese warrior women in Japan because Japanese gender politics follows a fascinatingly different development to those that we're used to in European history. However, all this magic and warrior monks has me worn out for the day. Hopefully see you next time as we dive on more to the fascinating period of peace and tranquility that seems to contain nothing of the sort. That's an arigato gozaimashita for listening, and a mataraishu from me. Bye!